He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Hi, this is Vanessa Angel from the movie Kingpin. I wanted to say a big hello to all the listeners of Munson's at the Movies. I'm so excited to hear that there's a podcast inspired by the movie Kingpin. Welcome to Munson's at the Movies, another Munson's Choice episode. My name is Kyle. I will be your host. I'm here once again with the rest of the Munson's. I want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> give him a chance to talk a little bit about what's going on in life rigby same old same old man just uh riding out the the quarantine day by day watching seemingly more and more movies as the time passes just hanging tough and uh not going outside unless i need to case well somebody's told me that they started a quarantine a couple weeks ago i don't wasn't aware (laughs) of that so apparently i've been running around the neighborhood breathing on everybody and and irritating social distancing not a big Uh, news guy (laughs) <laughs> no, not a big news guy. But, uh, you know, just hanging around, getting things done, staying busy, you know, with a variety of projects. I um, I continued my culinary ex- exploits this weekend, making a dramatic uh, macaroni and cheese video that was well-received. So I've, I've got that working for me. <laughs> it's pretty epic. Your editing skills are top-notch right now, Craig. Warren? Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, in this time in quarantine, it's I've I found a uh, a black hole and I've transported into the future and I've immediately become like a seventy five year old man. I I wake up early, I drink coffee while doing a crossword, and then I stare blankly into the yard uh, and cuss like plants that are growing where they shouldn't be and animals that are eating flowers that they shouldn't be. So <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm miserable as shit. <laughs> You're a, you're a one-man neighborhood watch. That's yeah. what you are. Get off my dirt lot. <laughs> Throwing rocks at kids. Yeah. James? I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum as Warren, but in the same vein. Uh, I've reverted back to being a college kid who's bad at college. Um, I am drinking more than I've ever drank before. I go to bed at ridiculous hours at night. I sleep in way too late and I'm late on most of my homework and actual work assignments. So, uh, I reverted back to like 2006, James. (laughs) (laughs) You're halfway to losing your Munson card, man. Can't have that. You got the 2006 Fohawk? No, but uh, that's only because I don't trust my wife with clippers. (laughs) <laughs> time to dye that hair blonde james that's right really spring break Puka shells are coming back <laughs> <laughs> please don't <laughs> for, for kate's sake please don't on my end much like warren I, I feel like i'm in the middle of the uh the battle against my yard i've got the dandelions popping up all over the damn place i've laid down two different rounds of weed killer and they continue to pop up so i found myself yesterday for about half an hour just like plucking the long versions of Danny Lyons, so they don't spread their seed all over the place. I'm, I, and I don't even own this home. That's the, that's the ridiculous part about this. I'm freaking renting. I'm sitting having a stupid battle against the yard. It's mildly annoying, boys. So as mentioned early on, this is a Munson's Choice episode, so it's a little bit of a random piece of content in between our normal cadence of episodes. Just like we did with the Jessica Chastain episode, we... Uh, took five actors that we all personally enjoy or find intriguing and put them on the wheel. Uh, so in this case, Warren threw on Idris Elba. Warren, what was the uh, thought process there? Guys, I was hell. His voice is incredible. The end. <laughs> Idris is a talented dude. You just want to watch Hobbs and Shaw again. I wanted to ro- watch Rock and Roller like 55,000 times because Guy Ritchie is great in those movies only. <laughs> can't disagree with you i guess aladdin too the new aladdin he did that one which was surprising james you threw on emma stone yeah the reasoning was similar to warren's again is she's hot <laughs> uh, <laughs> um no she's in she's in a bunch of great movies and she's young and her career has kind of made her a movie star right from the jump so i think it'd be cover, uh, cool to cover someone so young and so talented yeah i threw on ken watanabe partially because I love The Last Samurai and think he's incredible in that movie and just pretty much 
everything I'd seen him in, I, I found it to be enjoyable. Inception, other other films like that. So I felt like Ken would be a good option. Uh, Rigby, you threw on Benicio del Toro. Yeah, he's obviously got a pretty wide range of good movies the past twenty five years. Um, I love Traffic. I love the I love the Usual Suspects, Snatch, yeah, um, Sicario, Sicario, Sicario awesome. The Pledge with Jack Nicholson. He's he he plays like a deranged guy in that movie, which is probably what he plays in every movie he's in almost. Yep. But uh, he's a very talented guy. I'd love to dive into his filmography. In a rounded out case, added Rosario Dawson. Listen to some of these movies. Sin City, Clerks 2, Guide to Recognizing Your Saints, Death Proof, Grindhouse, Descent, Eagle Eye, and Kill Shot. And that's just 2005, 2006, 2007. Wow. So she has a ton of movies that you know we've all seen and, and would have been fun to to dig into and, and watch some of those things. Plus, she's had some really cool TV roles. Yeah, she was in the Marvel Universe, right? She was on, was it Daredevil? She was in yeah. all of them. She was, she was kind of this connecting character <laughs> between right. them. Yeah, she was close to Luke Cage. That's right. All right, so we, we took those five. We spun the wheel, and I swear there was no collusion. Spun the wheel, uh, and it landed on Ken Watanabe. What Shocker. are the chances Kyle's pick just keeps going? <laughs> Go to Vegas, bro. Yeah. <laughs> what a gambler, this kid. Uh, you know, I'm two for two on these. You know how it's going to go from here. I will never get one of my months and choices ever again. Good. Good. <laughs> Watch me go five for five, boys. I know. You. It's going to be nuts. Well, just tell me who you want in the future, and I'll just make him my choice. You know, a little reverse Ooh, okay, psychology. Yeah, that works. Well, there you go. So we're covering Ken Watanabe. Super fascinating guy. Uh, has, has a very long career. But before we get into all that, as always, James is going to drop us with some actor trivia. All right, folks. We're going to do two truths and a lie. If you're new here, I'll explain. If you're this is... Uh, if you're a veteran of this game, you know that the lie is based around an actor from Fast and the Furious. Um, so I'm going to say two true things about Ken Watanabe and one thing that is true about an actor from Fast and the Furious. And the boys are going to try to guess which one that is. So the first fact is he was raised a Jehovah's Witness and was not allowed to watch any movies as a child. The second fact is two-thirds of the characters he's played on film have either been dying or have died in the movie. And the third fact is he's been diagnosed with cancer and beat it three separate times in his life. That's damn good, man. Wow. Jeez. <sighs> James, say the first one again. He was raised Jehovah's Witness and was not allowed to watch movies as a child. That smells like a Fast and the Furious fact. So yeah. Number I, one. I think one, too. Just stinks like one. But I know he's battled cancer before. I don't know about the three times. but <laughs> And also the second fact just sounds, <laughs> sounds real just based off the movies I've seen. Let me hear the other two guesses. I'm gonna say number two. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go number three, just because I think he's beat it twice. Oh, that's true. I hope if he has it a third time, I hope he beats it then. But I have no fucking clue who in Fast and Furious could beat anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, you guys are pretty hip to my tricks here. Fact number three was in fact true. He's been diagnosed with and beat cancer three times in his life. Um, he got yeah. leukemia and then relapsed a few years later. And then in 2015, he was actually diagnosed with stomach cancer and beat that as well. Um, fact number two, also true. He has actually died or been dying in two thirds of the movies he has been in, which is, um, he even broke it down even further. Um, mostly he's been stabbed by swords, uh, and, uh, he's been poisoned three separate times. Um, and fact number one is uh, not about him at all. He was not raised Jehovah's Witness, and he was allowed to watch movies his entire life. That is actually a fact of Michelle Rodriguez, the star of Fast and the Furious. Give Ooh. me a break. <laughs> <laughs> number one just seemed way too like out there for it not to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I had another fact I was going to use, but it was like it's so awesome. I didn't want to share it because you would clearly be able to tell it was wasn't about someone from Fast and the Furious. And it's that uh, he's one of 10 actors of Asian descent to ever be nominated for Academy Award in acting. And there's no way I say that fact. And you guys are like, 
Hmm, is that someone from Fast and the Furious? Like, no, there's no chance that's somebody from Fast and the Furious. <laughs> yeah, there's only one option from Fast yeah. and the Furious, and uh, it ain't him. Yep, correct. Thanks, James. Case is going to give us a little background in Watanabe's snapshot and box office history. Getting dialed into him. Uh, you know, he's the, the blockbuster movies he's in do well. He's been in a couple of movies, and I think this hurts him in american cinema and getting more roles that personally i think he should be in a lot more movies and, and he should be the leading man or the top supporting actor and in, in a lot more movies than he is but I, I think the big thing is anytime that he's lead or a supporting like a lead supporting role the movies just they don't open well and they lose money and unfortunately in hollywood they tend to favor movies that uh, or favor directors and actors and those types of combinations that make money and uh, unfortunately, he hasn't. He's had some giant successes, but you know he's he's had some he's had some real doozies that haven't done well. I'm going to give you guys three movies that did not do very well in the box office, and I want you to guys to tell me which one had the worst opening weekend. Okay, okay we had um, Cirque du Freak, The Vampire's <laughs> Assistant, Shanghai. And we had Sea of Trees. Of those movies, which one did the worst on opening weekend only? I'm going Sea of Trees because it's an A24, a little bit of a smaller production. Okay. That, that would be my guess. Sea of Trees. Cirque de Freak because I've never heard of that movie until this exact moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going Sea of Trees as well. Just Cirque de Freak because fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Cirque de Freak ended up uh, bringing in $6.3 million on opening weekend off of a $40 million budget, and it actually only lost $1 million in the box office. Who the fuck saw that in theaters? (laughs) Big uh, Josh Hutchinson dance. That too. Yeah, not me. Not you guys, apparently, either. The winner of our competition is Sea of Trees. Uh, Had a $25 million budget. The worldwide gross at the when all was said and done was $907,000, losing that movie (laughs) $24 million. Oh, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a new record low opening of two thousand dollars. Wow. Whoa! That's it, two thousand. That? I did. I finished my sentence, dude. <laughs> was it the premiere? And that's it? like, what? How does that work? That movie made just a little bit more than I made from the stimulus package. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct, sir. That's so that uh, it's unbelievable. Says- I mean. A Marvel movie makes that much money in popcorn on opening day. Right. From one, from one theater. One theater, yeah. <laughs> from one theater. So, you know, and, and I think those things hurt him, right? At, at the end of his – not at the end of his career, but as his career has gone on, I think those types of things hurt him because, again, Hollywood's trying to make money. Well, before we get into his first feature film, uh, between he started acting in 1982. So between 1982 and 1985 – he was in a variety of uh, Japanese television. Uh, his first movie that he was in was called MacArthur's Children. He played Tetsuo in 1984. But it wasn't really until 1985 that he's in kind of his first feature film, and that's Tampopo. And Rigby's going to talk about that one. And before Rigby goes into it, um, based on the research we saw, this had a very high Rotten Tomatoes score. So it was interesting going into it. It was a fun movie to watch. Um, it was super creative. It's a comedy uh, film out of Japan from 1985, as Kyle said. It's described as a ramen western or a noodle western in, in uh, reference to a spaghetti western because the two main characters, or the two uh, I guess main male characters in the movie, Goro, who's played by this uh, actor, I hope I get this right, Sutomu Yamakaze, but his sidekick in the movie is played by Ken Watanabe. His name is Gun. Um, they wear sort of these Western, they wear cowboy hats and, and scarves and vests and cowboy boots. They kind of have like an old spaghetti Western style look to it. But basically the main plot of the movie is that these two truck drivers played by Yamakaze and uh, Watanabe, they are driving through the night and they're hungry and they stop at this ramen noodle shop where they find this shop that's sort of riddled with problems. You know, the customers are drunk, the food is bad. And they see the owner, she's this widow, and they sort of give her these pointers on how they can improve the shop. And after 
she takes the pointers. She asked, she asked Watanabe, but it's mainly Goro. It's mainly Su- Tsutamu Yamakaze. He's sort of the main character in all of this. Um, she asked him to be her teacher. The main plot of the movie is them teaching the owner of the noodle shop, whose name is Tampopo, how to become basically the hottest ramen noodle restaurant um, in her town. It's a great story. That part of it is awesome. The woman who plays the owner, I can't, I can't remember her name off the top of my head right now. She's incredibly like charming in it. She's very sort of sad when she needs to be and also happy when she needs to be. She, she, she's a good character for who they're trying to portray, sort of her uh, downer look ramen noodle shop owner who needs um, some good news to turn things around, basically. Where the movie gets crazy is that there are some crazy subplots that have nothing to do with the main narrative. They're basically a series of sketches about food, both from a sensory standpoint, but there's also this weird sort of subplot where these two people basically use food during sex, and it gets pretty gross. There's a famous scene where these two, uh, a guy and a girl, crack an egg, And they basically play with the egg yolk in their mouth like a game of teeter-totter. It's one of the grossest things I've ever seen. And if that, yeah, it's Uh. disgusting. Oh, Some very graphic sex scenes with with food in this, not including the egg yolk. You know, there's a lot of strawberries on nipples and just like stuff that you, stuff that I wasn't prepared for. I kind of thought this was going to be a, a happy-go-lucky film and I was, (laughs) I was way wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the origin of the term food porn. Yeah, yes. I thought I thought for sure you were going to tell me they did a Portuguese breakfast. So I was about to bark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that is. But it yeah, that's awful. over my head too. I won't yeah, ask. You don't know. Is. You can't afford it. <laughs> exactly. It's like a ZJ. Go watch Deuce Bigelow too. It'll tell you everything. <laughs> <laughs> there's a series of subplots that include the food porn. Uh, there's another sketch where these, this woman is trying to teach these other women how to eat spaghetti without slurping loudly while the guy next to them is slurping so loudly that these women are distracted. So it's, it's kind of funny, sort of like strange subplots. They're creative and they add sort of some pizzazz to the movie. I almost thought they were too, they were too much. Uh, there's like five or six of them in, a, in the movie and they kind of lose focus on the main narrative. I wish that they would have just gone with the main narrative a little bit more. Cause I love that story. Just these two guys who are trying to help this woman basically turn her life around. Watanabe has a small role in this and his role sort of seems to shrink as the movie goes on. And his partner is really the main driver of the film. He's the guy who's giving her all the advice and she's listening to him at the end of the day. So it's one of those movies that, it's probably even more popular now just because the foodie sort of culture has kind of taken off and you can't really watch this movie without getting hungry because they do. There's like awesome shots of like the ramen noodles, like boiling in the pot and like the pork and stuff. And you get really hungry, but then you see these subplots and you're like disgusted by food as well. (laughs) So I've never been like hungry and disgusted at the same time. Uh, But it was a, probably a good starting off role for him. It's one of those movies that I didn't really know how to feel at the end of it. It was, it's sort of like a mind fuck because like I said, it's, it, you, ha- you feel these emotions, you know, when you watch it, you get hungry, but then you're sort of just like, who are these people? Like, why are they doing this to themselves? The 100 on Rotten Tomatoes, I, I would have to really look into that. Why it's a hundred. I don't know how many people actually reviewed it. I can't say I would be in that, in that category. If I had to s- score the film, it's probably a bunch of Yelp people. <laughs> yeah, I would say so too. I would say it's people who are just really hungry when they watch the movie. I'd give it like a seven. It's very creative. It's funny. I'd be happy to never watch it again. (laughs) Hey, someone had to, right? Yep. Appreciate you, Rigby. Thank you for your service, Rigby. Yep. (laughs) Great joy of serving others. Appreciate you, bro. He's from Japan. Got his start in Japan. So a lot of his early work is working in the the Japanese film and TV scene. So following Tampopo, between 1986 and 1987, he was in a movie called The Sea and Poison. He played Toda. Um, he was also in a movie called Dokugan Ryu Masamune. Uh, he played Date Masamune, um, and I, I point this one out because based on the research that I was doing, uh, this was a TV show in 1987. This was his big break. He played a samurai, and that set up his career. He's played a samurai in a lot of uh, a lot of film and TV over the years, um, which will lead us into um, his Oscar-nominated performance here in a little bit. Um, but that particular role on that show pushed him into this new trajectory, and I think that's important to point out. Um, Over the next 13 years, so 1989 to 2002, he played various parts in 31 total Japanese TV miniseries and TV movies. So the guy was busy, right? We're talking two and a half, I guess two and a half shows or or movies per year during that time. Um, Some notable ones during that time, uh, knowing that we didn't really get a chance to watch many of these, 
Uh, he was in a movie called Welcome Back, Mr. McDonald. He plays a truck driver. So it sounds like a minimal role, but that one was from 1999, and it has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes as well. So some other smaller, lesser-known films that he's in that have gotten really good critical reviews. Some notable historical dramas he was in, as noted by Wikipedia, were Oda Nobunaga, Chushingura, and Bakumatsu Junjo Den. Someone check my uh, pronunciations on that. I apologize if I screwed that up. I don't want to congratulate you on that because my guess is you did screw it up. And so, um, (laughs) bad job, Kyle. Yeah. I I should start it with the disclaimer before before we went into this. Give us a little bit of leeway here. Um, You know, none of us are are trained in the Japanese language, so we're going to do our best. So, some other personal things during that time. James mentioned it earlier. He was diagnosed with leukemia in 1989 while filming Heaven and Earth. He had his relapse in 1991. In 1998, he was in a film called Kazuna, and he was nominated for Japanese Best Supporting Actor. He didn't win, but he was nominated. Um, He's been, in total, nominated three times for Best Supporting Actor in Japanese films. And in 2002, he quit his agency. It's called the N Theater Group. It's essentially his his, uh, acting agency. And he joined a new agency called K-Dash Agency. With that switch, he was in a movie called Senin no Koi, uh, translate, roughly translated to Thousand Year Love 2002, and he also earned another Japanese acting award during that one. So during those 13 years, he was super busy doing a lot of Japanese television and received a number of awards. So I think it's important to frame, while he wasn't in the American film scene yet, he was still at the top of his game in the Japanese scene. Right. That gets us to 2003. He makes his first big jump into American film in The Last Samurai as Katsumoto. Um, I'm going to assume that everybody on this podcast has seen it and probably, for the most part, looks fondly upon it. But I think I have it on DVD. I do, too. So I'll, I'll, I'll chime in. That portrayal of Katsumoto, for me, is one of my favorite best supporting actor performances in the past 20 years. The movie only works if that character is done really well. And uh, I look back very fondly. That's a very rewatchable movie for me. I think that's well said, Kyle. I didn't think that until you had just mentioned that in regards to the movie working. Um, because his character is the most interesting character in the movie in that he has Tom Cruise's character kind of in the palm of his hand and can do whatever he wants with like a prisoner of war. And it's so detailed and layered and the portrayal of him is this dark brooding man who's also like super endearing. Um, and I thought he was tremendous. And there's a reason why that kind of propelled him into U.S. fame immediately afterwards. I think it was an absolutely warranted nomination. He did a really good job of portraying his character on an even ground than Tom Cruise, who's who's the hero of that story. I, I like that a lot, and we see that after this, too, but I thought that was great to see, like Kyle was talking about. In 2005, he was in a movie called Year One in the North. He played Hideki Komatsubara. Uh, but also in 2005, he was in Batman Begins, playing... I guess he played Ra's al Ghul, but he really wasn't Ra's al Ghul. That was Liam Neeson. Uh, so a minor role, but an important part of that movie. Gets him in, gets him into the Christopher Nolan, uh, gets him on the short list of phone calls for movies. But he's, he's for that role, he's a totally believable. Like when you think of somebody learning, you know, martial arts and that kind of stuff, having him step out. I'd be like, oh shit, yeah, I, I could definitely learn karate from. Uh, right, he's played a samurai like twenty times at that point. It only makes sense, right? Yeah, and I'd much rather you know if you're like you could either learn it from him or Liam Neeson. You know, Liam Neeson's only got a certain set of skills, but Ken Watanabe can do tremendous you know, particular set of skills. Yeah, <laughs> is it is it safe to say that if he hadn't been in the Last Samurai, he probably wouldn't have gotten that role in Batman Begins? Yeah, I, I, think that's... I believe so. That's fair. That's fair to say because that was that was an, that's an, that's far enough in advance for it to come out and then you know start the filming as Raz uh, Al decoy. So the timing works out, like riding sure. the high of oh, people recognize this guy. Let's pop him in this movie, and it probably led to his involvement in Inception, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. I can actually uh, confirm that it did. I looked into it. There you go. A little sneak preview of what's to come here. Also in 2005, we run into his largest audience gap, which is Memoirs of a Geisha. In this case, 
the critics gave it a 35 and the audience gave it an 83. So it is a huge gap. We're talking almost 50 points. Um, so it's a polarizing movie in a lot of ways. I had the honor to cover Memoirs of Geisha. I will start by saying this. I had never seen it before. I knew of it, but I had just never seen it at any point in time. Much like the last movie I covered, Tulip Fever, I think a lot of the off-screen parts are really interesting with Memoirs of a Geisha. The plot itself, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that because I think most people have probably seen Memoirs of a Geisha at this point. But if you haven't, basic idea is uh, Sayuri is this young girl who is kidnapped, essentially sold into a house that trains geishas uh, in Japan. And um, her, her sister disappears, runs off, her parents die, and so she's kind of stuck in this lifestyle um, to become a geisha. She's narrating her own story, and essentially she falls in love with Ken Watanabe's character as a young girl, which is mildly creepy, um, and kind of becomes obsessed with him the rest of the way. The, uh, the film itself, just so we're framing it up properly, uh, it won three Oscars for cinematography, costumes, and art design, and it was nominated for three others. For Score, which was done by John Williams, which is also the first movie he ever asked to score, which is interesting. Um, sound editing and sound mixing. So a pretty heavily... It received a lot of critical acclaim from the Academy, but when you look back, the critic score is very low, which makes it a, a really interesting movie to cover. Um, the, the main reason the film is so controversial, and I'm not, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, the three main actresses, Lee Gong, Zi Zhang, and Michelle Leo are all Chinese actresses Ooh. playing Japanese roles. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, that's yeah. If depending on who you talk to, the producers would tell you that they opened up auditions for Japanese actresses and no one came, and so they just hired the Bullshit. best people they could. <laughs> did they op- did they open it up in China? <laughs> they said they opened it up and no one showed up. Now, if you ask Japanese actresses who were interested in the role, they said the reason they didn't audition is because they felt that the movie wasn't going to do the concept of a geisha. They weren't going to do it well. And so they didn't want to be part of the production. Right? So it's a lot of he said, she said, no one's really sure. But that is the main reason that the critic score in IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes is so low, because of the, the idea of representing culture and it not... Be- the geisha being very important to Japanese culture and not having Japanese actresses filling those roles. Despite how talented those three actresses are, they're mega talented and very good in the roles. Um, they're just not Japanese. So um, that's kind of like the legend behind the movie and why it's largest audience gap, um, because audiences generally like it. When you talk about Wanabi, his he's not asked to do a ton in this movie. He plays a very important role as the chairman who... The, the main character, um, Sayuri, falls for when she's very young, and her entire goal of the movie is to eventually capture his love and his affection. Um, that's why she becomes the, the most notorious geisha uh, in Japan at a certain point. Um, there is a pivotal scene at the start when she first meets him that s- makes the movie work. And he is extremely kind, very generous, take some time to talk to her once she's a young girl and she's trying to figure out this whole new lifestyle and um, his generosity sets her on this new path. So without that scene working and without Wanabi acting really well, it, the movie doesn't work, right? Similar to what we talked about with his role as Katsumoto, Katsumoto in Last Samurai. So the rest of the movie, he's, he's, in, he's in scenes, but he's not doing a ton. It's a lot of facial expressions. And it's not until the end where he has that pivotal scene with uh, Sayuri and they confess to each other that they are very much in love with one another and that kind of loops the story together. Um, but I would say he does a good job at the two pivotal scenes he needs to, otherwise he's not asked to do a ton. I saw it in high school um, because uh, the girl I was dating at the time loved the book and uh, I had no interest in watching it, so I feel like I would do a terrible job actually giving a synopsis of it or a review of it because I just didn't pay attention the whole time. It's a beautifully shot movie. It's well-deserved for the Oscars that it did receive. Um, the, the sound is great. The art design, the costumes are gorgeous. Um, and the, some of the camera shots are some, some of the better ones I've ever seen. So from a technical standpoint, it's awesome. The thing you guys will find entertaining is that there is a scene 
where they do a whole sumo scene and one of the sumo wrestlers behind the scenes i noticed him right away and i was like how do i know this dude i go to imdb it's fumiko from the replacement oh nice <laughs> all right which the, uh, the guy who eats raw eggs yes yeah uh-huh. <laughs> not this guy <laughs> Uh, he plays one of the, he doesn't actually like, he's just standing in the background, but I just recognized him right away. I was like, that's, that's the dude from the replacements, isn't it? So it just kind of reminded me of a, a movie I really like. 2005, 2006, Moonlight in Tokyo, he plays the, an, an inspector. Um, and also in 2006, he's in a movie called Memories of Tomorrow. He plays Mazuyuki Saiki. Uh, and this one, we tried really hard to find a copy of it, uh, just to watch it. We just couldn't track it down. Uh, he won Best Actor at the Japanese Academy Awards for his role. And my understanding of the role is he plays a man who's slowly drifting into Alzheimer's uh, and trying to maintain his relationship. And it sounds like a really interesting movie, an interesting role. Just None of us could really get our hands on it to be able to watch it. But luckily, 2006, uh, we have his highest critic score, and that's Letters from Iwo Jima. Uh, and Case has that one. Uh, Letters from Iwo Jima is a 2006 Japanese-language American war film director, directed and co-produced by Clint Eastwood, uh, also produced by Steven Spielberg and Robert Lorenz. This part I found was interesting. It was written by Iris, Iris Yamashita and Paul Haggis. You guys recognize that name, right? Yep. I've, I, heard, I, I, saw the na- I saw the name scroll across the screen. I was like, where the hell do I know that name from? He won an Oscar for Crash. He also wrote Million Dollar Baby, too. He's like a big screenwriter. I was going to say he, uh, he wrote Texas Ranger Trial by Fire TV movie. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Walker, Texas Ranger, or just Texas Ranger? It's Walker, Texas Ranger TV movie. Uh, but he also did write uh, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. So, um, you know, right from the jump, this movie's this movie's got some some talent behind it. Um, the movie's based on uh, a book called Picture Picture Letters from Commander in Chief, written by Tadamichi Korobayashi, who is also the main character played by, by Watanabe. Um, this I didn't know this. Um, at least I didn't remember this. But it was a companion piece to Eastwood's Flag of Our Fathers. And technically, in the in the chronological point, this movie occurs right before or right as Flags of Our Father begins. It depicts the same battle, obviously, but from a Japanese or from Flags of Our Fathers depicts the same battle from an American viewpoint. And Letters from Iwo Jima is obviously from the Japanese viewpoint. Despite being produced by an American film company, Letters from Iwo Jima is almost entirely in Japanese. Uh, many people look at Letters from Iwo Jima as the more successful of the two movies, both in rating and in box office. So this movie stars Watanabe, and, and he is the general who writes all these letters, and and that is that's what this story is written on. You know, I'm not going to get into the whole plot because it's a very the movie's strengths are the way it's shot, and and how understated, but yet skillfully the the story is written what it does is it takes these letters that the general wrote to his family and it also fuses in some other historical things and and that's how this movie was was built and that's also why eastwood wanted to make sure that it was it was in japanese language watanabe he's brilliant in this movie he does a great job showing both the authority and tenderness um you know being a general and and making sure that everybody is, is doing what they're supposed to. And then when he's in his quarters or he's off to his side or, he, or he's dealing with somebody on a one-to-one basis, he's got just this wonderful tenderness that really does come through. It won multiple awards in both America and Japan. Eastwood had joked on multiple interviews that it was considered a foreign film, both in the U.S. and Japan. <laughs> and so the year it was nominated for uh, Best Picture. And had it won the Academy Award that year, it would have been the first foreign language film to win an Academy Award. It was just, it was a great movie, and I was excited to watch it once my name came up as having to watch this. And as I was watching it, it was definitely worth the anticipation. So I got I've got nothing but high praise for this film. I watched it earlier today, and I think I went in being like I couldn't remember which one was it this or was it Flags of Our Fathers that was a Clint Eastwood movie because I I don't really care for Clint Eastwood's movies that much. And then once his name came across, I was like, fuck, I picked the wrong one. (laughs) Then I started watching and like I was I was blown away by 
the the acting and the story and some of these there's some scenes in it that are like disturbingly profound the soldiers you know the whole the whole they come across is showing a bunch of the the japanese culture and and military and all that stuff and how it's everything's for the emperor and honor for your family and dying for your country and it's better to kill yourself honorably than it is to die by the hands of you know western pigs and so like they the amazing thing was this balance because honestly, every single movie portrays, and I read about this, every single movie portrays Japanese during World War II as they're all suicidal kamikazes yep. and they're they're just like batshit. And so this, it, it takes this more humanizing approach. There are people fighting under orders, just like every you know American soldier movie. And there's one scene where they capture an American soldier and there's this dialogue between one of the one of the Japanese like majors who spent time in California, and he like they communicate, and then they realize he's just a normal guy. Like he's do he's no different than anybody else. But the scene the scene when the guys are in the cave and they all start grabbing grenades and blowing themselves up, fucked up. Yeah, yeah, super fucked up. Like that was disturbing as hell. So I was, I was blown away by the movie. I really, really enjoyed it. And Watanabe is, he's a fucking delight. And yeah. he is, he is like just like you said, Craig. He is so grounding and like forceful when he needs to be. And then like he turns, like he can turn it off immediately and just have this like smile and be your best friend and like all the good uh, traits that you would expect out of somebody in a position of power. I would agree with everything you just said, Warren. Um, I think East, that's why Eastwood wanted to make this movie because he saw in Watanabe's character like this guy who wouldn't back down to the or he wouldn't give in to sort of what you think is like the prototypical Japanese wartime culture, the do anything for the emperor. You know, it's better to die at the hand of yourself than it is at the hand of your enemy. You know, he he portrays that character perfectly. And there are, some, like you said, Warren, there are some very, very raw moments in it the grenade part is really intense from what Mm -hmm. i recall it's not just grenades you know soldiers shoot themselves in the head there's a lot of just gore and violence like you see in any other movie um the scene that you mentioned warren where the the two soldiers are talking where the the u.s soldier is like enamored by the fact that this that this japanese soldier was in the olympics um Mm -hmm. and he like recognizes him and knows he's like oh my god you were there like that's that's that was hit me on like a huge emotional level um, yeah yeah and yeah this i mean i was just reading some reviews and mm-hmm. a.o scott who's the the critic for the new york times who i like a lot he said this movie was near perfect and near perfect yeah, yeah. he's like a pretty strict critic so when he says that that means in my eyes it's probably going to be a good movie and i would agree with him i think it's an awesome awesome movie damn i need to see this yeah same here the attention to detail of shooting it to make it look older right i mean just yeah that's a great way to phrase it, right? I mean, it's near perfect. And, and I even like that. You know, I learned a little bit about that particular story. I didn't realize that being stationed on Iwo Jima, or Iwo Jima for Japanese army was that's basically a death sentence. Yeah. Because it was yeah. all they were ordered to do was slow the Americans down. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that. It was in, in the way that those that they portrayed these soldiers who none of them spoke English and the way that they were, he was able to direct them and, and they were able to get this, these actors to show that like, I've got to do my job, but yet I'm scared as hell. Uh, it was, yeah. it was beautiful. I mean, that, yeah, you guys nailed it. It's near perfect. Unlike Geisha, it was all Japanese. Yeah. And that, I was going to say <laughs> in, in contrast to memoirs of Geisha, it's all English other than the first like two minutes, which don't have Japanese subtitles to it. Uh, it doesn't do it the same amount of justice, right? The the culture, from a technical standpoint, the costume's awesome, but because it wasn't Japanese actresses and not Japanese language, it, it loses a lot of luster there. From 2007 to 2010, uh, Watanabe was in a couple of TV shows and movies, and he was also in Cirque de Freak, the vampire's assistant, as Mr. Tall. Yeah, this was right around when the Twilight craze was like probably sweeping across America, so they probably greenlit it thinking it would be like a extension of that. Wanabi was also in The Unbroken. He played Hajimi Onchi in 2009. He was in Clouds Over the Hill. He played the narrator, which was a 2009 TV series. Uh, that brings us to 2010. Now we're doing a little bit of a audible here. 
James was supposed to cover a different film, Unforgiven from 2014. We had a hellish time trying to run it down. Um, so as a result, we went into a Munson's Choice option, and James is going to talk about uh, Watanabe's role in the movie Inception. Yeah, so I was supposed to see Unforgiven, and honestly, I, it is not possible for me to watch it unless I buy it outright, or uh, I watch it in Egyptian, which is available on YouTube. So uh, that was not going to happen either. So we called the Audible, and luckily I got to watch Inception, which I will get out of the way now, is one of my favorite movies of all time. So obviously I'm going to be a little biased in my review here, so I wanted to let you guys know that beforehand. For those of you who haven't seen Inception, you need to do something with your life because this movie rocks. Um, it's an action sci-fi thriller written, directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, and this is him like completely in his bag, like time, time warps and messing with narratives. This is everything you like about Christopher Nolan right here. Um, trying to come up with a plot synopsis was actually hard for me because like most Nolan movies, like the narrative jumps between story timeline, but there's actually someone who, counted how many times that happens in Inception and it is 223 times does it drop between different dream layers and timelines so for me to explain what's going on in that would probably take like the entire time of this podcast um, so I've shortened it to this uh, here's the plot real quick it's a thief played by Leonardo DiCaprio uh, he's able to steal corporate secrets through the use of dream sharing technology you don't need to go deeper on trying to figure out what that dream sharing technology is uh, it's just a guy who can go into your dreams um, and a businessman played by Ken Watanabe uh, gives him the inverse task of instead of stealing a dream he wants him to plant an idea in the mind of a CEO of a rival company of uh, rival company to Ken's company in the hopes that it will ruin his biggest uh, competition. This movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Uh, it actually won four Academy Awards, mostly for all of its visual effects. Its storytelling and special effects are amazing. And even when you know all the twists and turns that are coming, it's still just a pleasure to watch. Uh, mm -hmm. It's smart, it's innovative, it's thrilling, and it succeeds both, uh, both viscerally and intellectually. It's, it's just even knowing the outcome and the, the twist, you're still enthralled and it holds up today and it's about 10 years old. Yep. Watanabe plays the role of Sato, who is the businessman. Um, he actually got that role because writer, producer, director Nolan felt that although he had appeared in Batman Begins, like we mentioned earlier, he didn't have that much screen time and there sh therefore should be given a more prominent role because Nolan really liked him both in The Last Samurai and then working with him in Batman Begins. Watanabe has a, and you, uh, Craig, you actually mentioned this in your review he he kind of has this deep powerful presence like in many of his roles and he's intimidating while still being uh endearing um his character is like two-thirds of his roles actively dying throughout the vast majority of this movie but uh because of something that's explained in the movie that time moves slower in dreams he's in the movie the entire time similar to a lot of roles that you we've talked about he plays somewhat of a Japanese stereotype and like a particularly one-dimensional businessman. But since his character is actively dying throughout this movie, he actually did a great job humanizing him and uh, mm. showing the vulnerability and showing that, you know, while he was kind of holding the character's feet to the fire and threatening them, that he's part of the team and he's working with them. Uh, I can talk about Inception forever, so I'll just end it here so we can talk more about it when uh, the wheel inevitably decides Leo. Uh, but <laughs> this movie rocks, and so does Watanabe in it. James, this, this movie's rated 13th on IMDb, total rankings. I saw that. The lowest uh, movie meter this has ever had was 525, and that was five months before it was even released. Since this movie's <laughs> come out, the lowest it's ever been is... 340 this that it's unbelievable i mean it's great it deserves all of the praise that it gets um, yeah it's such a great movie negative things that you can say about some of nolan's stories where they don't land as uh as much as he would maybe want them to this one lands on every level inception's huge movie that role for watanabe was huge between 2010 and 2014 he keeps rolling he's in four tv miniseries or tv movies in 2014, he's in Godzilla as Dr. Shiro Sirazawa. I mean, his, his role in it is it's necessary. Um, he's more of a like an exposition uh, character to really kind of explain like what's happening. 
but uh, you also get like the classic Gojira line. Uh, so, you know, it, it's an entertaining movie, but you know, I, I wouldn't put too much uh, too much into it. Also, in 2014, he was in Transformers: Age of Extinction. He played a character named Drift. It's the highest grossing movie of 2014. And the 29th highest grossing film of all time, Transformers, Age of Extinction. That's why they keep making them, man. That's why they're never going to stop making these movies if it just keeps going to see them. So I guess the one important note of this role is it's voice work. It's not on-screen work. So it it marks a little bit of a departure from some of the other work he's done. 2014 was also when we saw his largest critic app, which was the movie Unforgiven. Uh, But the movie itself had a 93 from the critics and a 78 from the audience. So although the gap is sizable, it's still a pretty good rating. So hopefully we'll get a chance to catch that movie at some other time if it becomes more accessible uh, because it's got some great ratings. Uh, I know it's a Japanese film. My guess is he's probably pretty good in it, uh, but none of us really, none of us saw it, so we can't speak to that. But we can talk about the lowest critic score. So we went from 93 for Unforgiven and to... Uh, pretty low in Shanghai, which was came out in 2015. And Warren loves this movie. And he can't wait to tell us. <laughs> Guys, you're not you're not joking. Like this movie, it went from 93 percent Rotten Tomatoes to four <laughs> percent. That that's a fucking bomber. Yep. <laughs> so this movie, it it's like a a noir film in shanghai in world war ii like right before japan bombs pearl harbor Mm -hmm. and john cusack works for the cia or naval intelligence i don't i don't fucking know he's too angsty and yeah (laughs) ken watanabe plays the japanese commander in the army and chow chow yun fat uh actually Mm -hmm. plays like this uh mobster that's uh, and he's, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, dude? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. He was uh, was in the movie as well, and I was like, wow, this is a hell of a yeah. cast. It should be great. Doesn't sound bad so far. No, no, absolutely Lee Gong's not. in it, and um, she's gorgeous. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not good. It, it, just, it doesn't make any sense. You don't care about it. Jeffrey Dean Morgan's in it, and all he does is sound like a douchebag. <laughs> he dies. Um, I like Jeffrey Dean Morgan, you know, too. It, it's... It, it's really hard to get into because they put effort into this movie. Like mm-hmm. it had, I think it had a fifty million dollar budget. It sure did, and it made and it made six mil, maybe. I mean, with with a cast like that, you'd figure they'd make something, but it, it just like it was so Americanized and washed that it was like you just didn't give a shit about it. It was. It was like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we kind of got a dead time. Uh, John Cusack, go make out with this lady. Uh, you know, fall in love with her. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, Chow Yun-Fat's wife in the movie. You know, he's a, he's a gangster, so it sounds like a good idea. Like, it's, they're just throwing in shit just to make, give it drama. And, you know, he, the thing that makes it so fucking cheesy is like those war movies where it's like the detective, a guy... Guy's in a you know a duster with a hat and it's raining outside and he's like, I've been standing here for you know ten nights you know looking out you know that vaudeville voice it's just like <laughs> yeah, you know, basically basically narrating everything that's happening and it's John Cusack's voice over everything and so I expect to hear like say anything stuff so, you know <laughs> him standing there outside a girl's window with like. Uh, a homophone playing playing play an album playing Peter Gabriel, but, yeah, Peter Gabriel, yeah, in your eyes, it's just like I, I just didn't give a shit about the movie. Um, I watched it with I watched it with my wife, and she she laughed at my misery. <laughs> the, the, the screenplay can be best described as big old chunk poopy. Big old chunk of shit. Hey, and Warren, you want to be enraged? Yes. That movie's budget was $31 million more than Letters from Iwo Jima. Yeah, that <laughs> fucking sucks, dude. So, so, Warren, how would you describe Watanabe? He's kind of like an antagonist, but only because he's from Japan and it's World War II. Like, that's the only reason why. But he ends up being, like, the hero of the movie because, at shocker, at the end, Chow Yun-Fat dies, you know, 
Jay, or uh, John Cusack's making off with his wife. They're about to hop on a boat during, you know, when all this World War II shit kicks off. And he has the ability to stop them and keep them because she's a part of the resistance and all this other bullshit. But he turns the cheek and lets them get on the boat. Like, you, you just don't even give a shit. One of the fatal flaws is the whole time he's, like, seeking out this, his mistress, right? And you think he's going to kill her. He's trying to kill her. The whole time, it's streamlined. He wants to kill this girl if he can find her because the resistance is hiding her. Then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I, I love you. I appreciate you. I want to save you. And it's like, nah, that none of this shouldn't happen. Like you were, you were yeah. like the worst human ever. Now all of a sudden you have humanity. There's nothing that allowed you to build that humanity. There was that one, one scene where Watanabe is like wife or whoever the, you know, the girl who's clearly on like having opium mm-hmm. withdrawals and Cusack basically helps him put her down yep. and like helps her euthanizes her and helps her die peacefully in that time, though, like you see Watanabe go from this like enraged individual to like super consoling and comforting, like sheds tears like in an instant, and then kind of has to like flip the switch back and be like, "You dead bitch." <laughs> no, to to Cusack, not to the lady. He was upset about that, and he flips the switch. Well, it's just the screenplay shouldn't have asked him to do that. It was just a bad setup. Right. That is the last of our movie reviews. That's 2015 is Shanghai. Between now and 2015, so 2015 to 2020, he's in, he was in a, a variety of different movies. So he was in The Sea of Trees. He played Takumi Nakamura. Uh, and The Sea of Trees, just as we mentioned earlier, was a huge bomberoo in the box office. Made $2,000 this opening weekend. It's an A24 production. By my account, it's the worst A24 production I've ever seen. And it's, it's got a good cast in McConaughey and Watanabe, and it's based on a book that was written. Like It it should have had some depth, but I have a feeling they just didn't do the idea of suicide. They just didn't do it justice. It just felt vapid. Yeah, I, I watched that movie, and, and I didn't enjoy it. And I've explained the movie to people, and they've been like, oh, I'd like to watch that. And I quickly correct them that <laughs> no, you, you do, do not want to watch it. Because everything makes sense. I mean, you know, like you said, Kyle, it's based on a good book. I mean, McConaughey, I enjoy all of his roles. Uh, you know, Watanabe, I enjoy his. It, it's an interesting story with, with alcoholism and all sorts of personal Na- issues. Naomi Watts is in it, too? I, I never saw it, but I remember it getting, uh, reading, like, reviews of it at the time that it, at I think it was Cannes or Venice Film Festival, one of the film festivals that it just got booed, like, ridiculous like, badly yeah imagine like, that a booing movie where like they can't hear you but you're just like i need to let everyone know how i feel <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just like a quick like 10 second boo it was like a extended you know couple minute boo i think so a standing boo yeah for quite a while yeah it, it's well deserved it i will say from a performance standpoint watanabe plays a, a suicidal man and is managing those emotions. And overall, he does okay. It's not his fault that the movie's bad. Uh, again, screenplay and the, the approach. I think some of the directorial decisions there just didn't lend well um, to a good result. Um, but it is a little bit different. He is still dying, as uh, James <laughs> so eloquently put. He dies in a lot of things. 2016, he's in a movie called Rage. He plays Yohei Maki. He is in the follow-up to the Transformers movies, so Transformers Last Night plays his character Drift again in 2017. He's in Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs as a head surgeon, a small role, 2018. Uh, he is in The King and I. He plays the King of Siam in 2018, which uh, is the film adaptation of a play that he was on Broadway. Uh, and I, I believe he won, a pr- or well, he was at least recognized with a pretty major award, right, Rigby? Uh, he was nominated. I don't think he won. Yeah, he was nominated yeah, for was, was, Tony Award nominated. for Best Actor. Yep, for, and he was the first Japanese uh, actor to be nominated for. I don't know. If, I don't think it was nominated for a Tony, but definitely nominated for Best Actor at the Tony Awards, which is a cool feat. And it, I think it's just important to note him going to Broadway. You know, just looking at the differences between doing a film, you know, doing it once. Yeah, there's multiple takes, but then being on Broadway and doing the same performance night after night, it, it's an impressive use of his skills and certainly mm-hmm. a departure from some of his screen work. 
also 2018, he was in Bel Canto. He played Hasekawa. Rigby, I know you watched this one. He plays uh, the typical Watanabe character. He's this rich industrialist who, um, from Japan who is celebrating his birthday at the Japanese embassy in, uh, in Peru where uh, Julianne Moore's character, who's this opera singer, she's there as like a guest um, to celebrate his birthday. And the embassy has taken uh, hostage, or it's taken siege by terrorists, and Watanabe and Julianne Moore uh, are part of a series of about 30 or so hostages that are in this month-long standoff with these terrorists. It's actually based off a, a true story that happened in, in the mid-90s, I think, in, in, in Peru as well. He dies in the end. Not to give spoiler alert, we we mentioned that he uh, he dies in, he dies or is seemingly about to die in two thirds of his movies. So it's not surprising that he uh, his he meets a f- unfortunate demise in this one. But um, yeah, he and Julianne Moore they they kind of fall in love in the movie. Um, he's he's like obsessed with her in the beginning of the movie, and as the movie goes on, she sort of be- begins to fall for him as well. So they have good chemistry. He kicked some ass in 2019 in uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. He played Lieutenant Yoshida. And I know, Warren, you love this movie. Oh, man, movie was a blast. Uh, Ryan Reynolds doing the voice of Pikachu was one of the funniest things ever. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was surprised. And uh, Watanabe does not die. In this <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> he survives. Limited role, though. He doesn't, he's not in it a ton. He was also in the sequel, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Can I uh, can I talk about King of the Monsters here? Because this is a movie that I think deserved at least to be nominated for Academy Award. And uh, <laughs> if you guys will follow me on my logic here, you don't go see this movie because of the plot, right? It it it's all the the plot is in the title. It's Godzilla. He's trying to be King of the Monsters. So the reason why this movie deserves it is not for the plot or the screenplay. It deserves it for the visual effects. Um, this is one of those movies where you go, you turn your brain off, you just eat as much popcorn as possible and just point at the screen and cheer as, you know, a three headed dragon fights a moth the size of Texas. It's everything you want in like an action movie. Um, and then I looked at who actually got nominated for visual effects the year it was up. Three of them make sense. The Lion King, uh, that was the adaptation where they had what looked like real animals. Avengers Endgame, totally understandable. Uh, <laughs> Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, you could sell me on that. And then there's these two. 1917, which ended up winning. Uh, I think it deserved to win for cinematography. I do not think it deserved to win for visual effects. I think that's a very clear, the Academy going, well, everyone liked this movie, so we should give it to that movie. Um, and then The Irishman, which in no way deserves to be nominated for visual effects. Um, I think you easily could have slid Godzilla in there, but because the Academy is so about itself, they would just refuse to like acknowledge that this shitty popcorn thriller actually had amazing special effects, because it really did. That is my King of the Monsters rant. Uh, what I will follow it up with is he dies in this movie as well. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> he, he pulls a... Uh... Bruce Willis at the end of Armageddon moment. That's the best role that I would compare it to. And lastly, he was in Fukushima 50 as Masao Yoshida. All right, we're going to get to the Munson meter. Um, for those who are new listeners, um, the way the Munson meter works, we, we rank each actor on a scale of 1 to 100. Uh, the categories we rank based on are longevity, right? How long have they been in the game? How consistent have they been? We look at pop culture impact. We cover their range as an actor. We talk about their awards footprint, any other talents that they might have. Do they write, produce, sing, whatever those things happen to be. Um, we rate them on their personal life. Are they a great human? Are they a big old piece of piece of shit, a big old turd? And also look at some of their comedy footprint. So um, we're going to start with Rigby. I think I saw Letters from Ujima before Last Samurai. I don't think I saw Last Samurai years after it came out. Um, He's, his presence in both of those movies are still with me today. Um, so I think he's incredibly talented. And, you know, hearing his Broadway sort of accolades sort of adds to that. Um, and, you know, I think he's, he can do the voice. He can do... Um, I haven't seen him really be in anything comedy-wise. But, you know, going back to the age-old question, I don't really know if those are the roles that he wants anyway. Um, he plays the stern yet affectionate character to a T and mm-hmm. 
I think, you know, he's in, he, he's in the Christopher Nolan universe, as James mentioned, that adds points in my book as well. Um, so I'm going to give him an 84. And I think that's, I want to say that's a few points below what I gave Lithgow. And I think they're, these two, their career arcs are almost, um, except for, except for the, uh, comedic effect and the fact that Watanabe I don't think has written a, a children's book I think their career arcs are very similar and so um, I think that's a fair score to give Watanabe as an 84 I'll jump in second I'm going to change it up a little bit I'm not going to go last on this one um, some of the notes that I had on Watanabe for his score were uh, he's owned his own production company since the 80s which I think is interesting so he's he's done some other work other than just acting. Uh, he, as we mentioned before, he's won a ton of Japanese acting awards, which I think, yeah, it's not necessarily uh, Academy Awards, but those, you know, go they they tell a story about uh, how good of an actor he is in, in Japanese film and television. So I made sure to account for that. Um, he's he's had a couple divorces. He had an extramarital affair. I mean, some of that took a little hit. Um, he did a lot of work around the tsunami in 2011 doing awareness. So that helped him there. And I got to give him the birthday bump because he and I are born on the same day, October 21st. So with all that said, Watanabe is getting a 76 from me. Uh, Case, you're up. All right. Well, a lot of the same things that you guys have said. Um, you know, I, I agree hundred percent. Uh, my favorite, my favorite thing when we evaluate actors is, or actresses is when I see them, on TV or in a movie, do I want to watch that movie? And he's a yes every time. Um, I'll at least give it a whirl. And, and I think I proved that by watching Sea of Trees. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I'm just going to say everything everybody else has said. So I'll just cut it short. I'm, I'm going to give him a 72. Uh, I, that's one of my higher scores. And I'm, I really enjoy, you know, his work and, and uh, look forward to more from him. Warren. Ken, Ken's been around for a while. Um, but he, you know, he, when you can be super successful in two completely different sides of the earth and two completely different cultures, like that's, that's some skill. Um, uh-huh. you know, ja- Japanese being, uh, you know, a native, native tongue and, you know, he, he plays, uh, great characters in uh, English films. And so, you know, he, he does a really good job of that. He has you know, I could be doing something and hear his voice on TV and just immediately like stop what I'm doing and look up kind of like Craig said, you know, his, his voice is so, it draws me in every single time. And yeah, the, the Nolan universe, it's great. Um, Iwo Jima letters from Iwo Jima really, uh, really blew my mind. And I really want to be able to see more of these other movies uh, of his without learning uh, another language and you know that that's unfortunately is going to kind of keep probably keep my score lower than what it should be like i i really believe that if i had seen a bunch of those movies i'd probably have them in like the mid 80s uh, but i'm gonna i'm gonna give him a 77 um you know i i think he's when i see that he's in something i know exactly what to expect from it as long as he's not playing uh, too tall or Mr. Tall in the vampire. <laughs> so um, I, I hope to see him in a lot more uh, stuff. James, you guys mentioned it. He's been acting for like the better part of 40 years. Um, he's been nominated for multiple awards for all three phases of acting. So TV, theater, films. Um, I, one thing I found really interesting is he is consistently based on what I was watching kind of cast into stereotypical one-dimensional roles that are um, very often a Japanese stereotype. And he's able to add depth to the characters that Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. think is originally there. And I think has a lot to do with how he portrays them. Um, He's actually, you know, a great representation of actors of Asian descent. We mentioned earlier, he's one of 10 actors of Asian descent ever nominated for Academy Award in an acting category. And he's one of two actors uh, who's ever been nominated for an Academy Award and a Tony in acting. Um, he does both movies that are like artistically beautiful as well as kick-ass blockbusters like Godzilla. Um, Kyle, you mentioned it. He's involved in nonprofit work. He started a charity after the earthquake that had the tsunami in 2011. Um, that is something near and dear to my heart, so I respect him for that. 
I think if he was to lock in some more leading actor roles in American movies, which might sound a little um, ignorant of me, but I didn't know a lot of these movies other than the ones recently, and he's been acting for years. Um, I think I'd, I'd rank him higher, and I think if he got nominated and won an Academy Award, um, that would be uh, something that would probably make him the highest ranked actor that we've covered. Uh, with that all being said, I put him just under Lithgow, and I put him at 82. Warren, what does that bring us in terms of an average? That puts him at a 78.2. And that puts him at third, uh, just behind Jessica Chastain and above Chris Pratt. So the next podcast is going to drop on May 7th. The wheel will decide on on April decide. 30th. Yes, the wheel will decide on April 30th. Uh, we will have a gas chip Hessen Flow from Too Much Scrolling will join us for that episode. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram at Munson's at the Movies. Email us at Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Um, we love, love, love hearing from you. If you have ideas, thoughts, send them our way or just talk shit to us on Twitter and Instagram. That's always good too. Uh, any final thoughts from the Munson's before we wrap up this Munson's Choice episode? No, this is a fun one. He's a talented guy. And like, yeah. Kind of like you all said, when he goes on screen, you're you're happy that he's there. Sort of like John Lithgow. So, it was. Re- I'm really glad you uh, you rigged the wheel so we got to do him. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're eternally welcome, my friend. I can't wait to do it one more time, at least another time. All right, Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?